Against a backdrop of growing anger in the country over the power crisis, now at stage six, we bring you a special edition of our podcast for the first episode of the year. Now, some reports are suggesting that ESCOM's failure to provide electricity is costing the country as much as 500 million rand a day. There is growing talk about protest and marches on ESCOM HQ and also Latuli House. And the president has cancelled his trip to the World Economic Forum in Davos. So... How is this impacting corporates and individuals in South Africa, and specifically the mining industry, the backbone of our economy? Is there a way out of this dire crisis? To discuss this important issue, we've got a number of guests lined up. Uh, Tersha Jacobs, Treasury Economist at Investec, along with Bernard Geldenhuis and Dieter Matzner from Investec's Power and Infrastructure Finance team. We're also fortunate to be joined a little later by Henk Langenhofen, Chief Economist at the Minerals Council of South Africa. This is No Ordinary Wednesday. A very warm welcome to you. I'm Jeremy Max. So to all of you, a very warm welcome. And Tersha, let's get the ball rolling with you. A massive 18.65% tariff increase. It seems to me when it comes to the provision of power, we've almost reached some sort of societal tipping point. Hi, Jeremy. You know, um, we are actually between a rock and a hard place. You know, on the one hand, um, NURSA was in a way compelled to give Eskom or grant Eskom a higher tariff increase because last year Eskom took them to court for, for several bad rulings. So NURSA was very cautious. One of the key focus points in NURSA's tariff increase was the positive factor for how much um, diesel Eskom can afford. You know, because with load shedding now running at stage six, you know, we Eskom needs to burn more diesel to reduce the various stages. And what happened in the current um, year or since last year was that Eskom had to spend additional funds on diesel above, which was beyond the budget, which means they actually then start cutting back on diesel, which led to the higher load shedding. We see now that um, NURSA gave them like eight and a half billion rand, but there's still a shortfall. So as we said, you know, it's, it's a toss up, either more load shedding or higher costs. And Tertia, almost complicating the equation is, I guess, the normal demand-side response to these higher prices that we're talking about. ESCOM loses revenue because more and more people, uh, those, of course, who can afford it, are going off the grid and looking for alternative solutions. So that's a valid point, but there's also now an additional factor coming in because where some people could have continued to pay higher costs, factors swaying that decision now is basically to have continuous energy. And I think that's going to become a bigger factor going forward. So what we have seen is that electricity demand has declined by roughly 1% per annum over the past 10 years. But part of it can be ascribed to an increase in efficiencies. For example, you know, if you buy a new refrigerator, you get a better quality one. So that has actually been um, a big driver. But I think going forward, um, there will definitely be more demand for going off the grid. But the interesting dynamic still is, you know, we cannot go completely off the grid because your backup power is still linked to energy availability from Eskom. 
Of course, Tersha, there's also the affordability side of it. This is all well and good for big corporates, for consumers that can afford to go off the grid. But we've got to concede there is very little alternative for a large cohort of the population. And that has political and societal implications or consequences. Absolutely. Um, so when you look at the, the sectors that are the biggest job creators in South Africa, it is the small and medium business-sized enterprises. And many of them just don't have the, the capital to invest in generators and you know afford higher running costs for, for diesel. So I think that is one of the areas that is going to take considerable strain. And I think hence the focus then on how Eskom could afford more diesel to run these peaking power station harder while we're waiting for more energy to come back online. Tersha, put on your pure economist hat if you can. All of this also means, I guess it goes without saying, that these provide additional headwinds for inflation, uh, for pressure on the consumer, FDI, and that is linked to our growth prospects. That is certainly very, very true. Um, We were expecting inflation to start moderating very nicely from the second quarter, you know, where the main drivers basically base effects after food and fuel prices rose aggressively last year. But now what's going to arrest the lower trajectory in the second half of this year is basically the acceleration of, you know, a 19% electricity tariff increase. And, you know, the municipalities will add their own margin to that as as well. So um, the Reserve Bank at next week's um, MPC meeting is likely to revise the, the second half of inflation rate higher. They penciled in an increase of 10%. So I think they can lift their forecast by another 0.3.4% to an average of roughly 5.7% this year. And I think the other dynamic now is it's going to be very difficult for the Reserve Bank to start cutting interest rates earlier. So we think we're close to peaking, but rates could move sideways for a more prolonged period of time. Let me bring into the conversation now Henk Langenhofen, who's the Chief Economist at the Minerals Council of South Africa. Henk, a very warm welcome to you. The crisis, I would imagine, given what we've just heard, is very worrying for the for heavy industry, where energy costs around 15% of total cash costs, up to, say, 30% for the likes of uh, South 32's hillside aluminium smelter. So let me start off. In your role as the Chief Economist for the Council, what are the biggest concerns for the industry right now? Well, the, the cost impact, because our input costs will rise, as we said in our press release, it changes the whole structure of our intermediate cost. In other words, if you exclude labor. But secondly, the, the impact on production. At stage four, we are asked to not to load shed, and we are able to actually produce and work around it. So you do the hoisting of ore and that sort of thing at different times. But when it goes higher than that, then that means you have to save energy. And that's in many instances not possible because the heaviest user part of mining is actually the smelters and the refiners. And they, if you need 400 megawatts, you need 400 megawatts. You can't cook on, on 60 degrees, you have to have 100 degrees. And that's the big concern. We've already had a drop in production this year. So what I'm hearing is that there are plans in place, albeit temporarily, but this is completely and utterly unsustainable. Yeah, absolutely right. It, it cannot continue without mining 
actually losing its production and its contribution to the economy on the one hand, its ability to earn foreign exchange, its ability to service its clients. Remember, most of what we mine and or refine is exported. So damage all around. And this obviously has an impact, doesn't it, on the entire supply chain? Yes. And and you have to look at the supply chain coming in and the supply chain from us going out. And that's what I meant. We are mining because we have a client somewhere, either in Pakistan waiting for coal or somewhere else waiting for iron ore, and we have to get it there. And mining, if even if you have electricity and you mine and you can't get it to the coast, which is, of course, the other in-between problem, then uh, that is not for free. Of course, it's not for free to mine, but it's also not for free to have a, a, a whole heap of stock lying somewhere and a heap of stock lying in front of your refinery or your smelter that you can't process. Hank, anything above stage four obviously has major implications for the mining industry because smelters can't run at half capacity. At stage six, with the threat of stage seven and stage eight looming, are we at the point now where the industry is talking about being at an inflection point? We are indeed. It's linked to costs of the price effect as well as the quantity impact and the beneficial will diminish. And that's what I mean by an inflection point is quantity impact, my overall the price benefit that we're getting. And I mean, if you just look at the situation and the, put the opportunity cost of the good market conditions that we, that we experience, for many shocking reasons on the one hand, the COVID situation on the other hand, the logistics situation worldwide, uh, the sort of just in case demand for many of our commodities instead of just in time, then one can cry in your hands if you if you look at it. So I've heard politicians say effectively business individuals are on their own. They've got to come up with their own solutions. So we've seen the lifting of the 100 megawatt cap on private power production. Is this going to offer any respite at all? I, I guess it's not something that can happen immediately. No, it can't happen immediately, but it's certainly a very welcome development. We have been asking for this for many, many a year now. But it will take time. It will accelerate the pipeline of projects. And, and as, as we stand now, there's 7 gigawatts or 7,000 megawatts of projects in the pipeline. We don't think much more than 1,000 or 1 gigawatt will come online this year. So uh, there isn't too much of a short-term solution except trying to work around it, like I, like I said in the beginning. That would be the, the only short-term response. We are quite concerned in the short term as well, most of the high electricity intensive parts of our of our mining sector are also the highest employers. And that makes, on the one hand, us very susceptible to, to this problem and impact on our production. But it, it is also very concerning that most of the high, high proportion of our labor force is employed by by these mines that are highly dependent on electricity. So although we at the moment, we were quite lucky, I would think that we are employing more people than we employed before the COVID lockdowns, but that may change over time. And, and that's a very great worry. It is of great concern because potentially we're talking hundreds, if not thousands of jobs here. Hopefully not. And we've shown during the COVID situation that we can actually work around it and, and work with labor. But it is, it, it, it is yet to be solved. There's no doubt about it. 
And just a final note then, we know the mining boom of the past year has been the one thing really propping up the economy. But now we have this inconsistent supply of energy. Water is also an issue. Is it too soon to have that doomsday conversation about a wholesale deindustrialization of the country and of the economy? Look, deindustrialization is, I think, a misnomer. The, the, the manufa- if I think of in- industrialization, I think of manufacturing. Manufacturing is something like four times bigger than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So that's not the issue. The fact of the matter is we will probably end 2022, and, and not all the data is out, but we will end 2022 at a similar contribution to the economy meaning that we will pay the same sort of taxes, we will earn the same type of uh, foreign exchange. Of course, if you then deflate for the, for the price increases in real terms, it is, it is much lower. But it's really about the future. And it's not only about 2023. It's about the uncertainty that is infused into decision-making about fixed investment. I had a, a very deep look at fixed investment uh, a while back. And, and exactly your question, but sort of in reverse was asked, will you invest more because of the better commodity prices? And the answer was that certainly uh, in the recent past, it didn't happen. And it's not happening worldwide because of all the uncertainties, and one can list them for a day, that in, in the mining sphere, there are more mergers and acquisitions than really expansion, and certainly very few massive new projects happening. So this additional very serious constraint increases the uncertainty about future potential for mining investment and mining production expansion. And that is the real worry. We already have not had much impact on fixed investment in mining. Uh, And I'm not talking about the financial flows. I mean, but what will it do to the willingness of companies to actually expand domestically? Uh, which which is a great pity because we think we have only really explored about 20% of the country's potential mineral wealth. And like someone said the other day, we must remember that South Africa is a freak of nature in terms of geology. And we know that there are much more to be explored and, and to be mined. But this makes it very uncertain and it puts the investment hurdles just higher and higher. Um, and that is not what we need. You ask a a very worrying question there to a very important uh, subject. Uh, Hank Langenhofen, Chief Economist at the Minerals Council of South Africa, thank you for joining me. We'll continue this conversation in just a moment. I do want to remind you that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Please don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. Let's turn our attention now to Investec's power and infrastructure team as we flesh out the current state of ESCOM and potential solutions to this uh, very concerning power conundrum. Dieter, what is the general state of ESCOM's coal-fired power plants as it stands today? Um, You look at the advisories that are put out and breakdowns seem to be snowballing, going from bad to worse. Yes, I think the the major issue is simply that, um, first of all, the newly built coal-fired stations in Medupi and Kusili are not fully operational at the design capacity of 4,800 megawatts each. Medupi had this uh, event where Unit 4 was blown up uh, due to a hydrogen explosion in the generator and will only at the earliest come back by the end of next year. 
Otherwise, end of 2024. Similarly, we have uh, Kusile having had two units not being commercial yet, only coming on sometime towards the last half of next year, as well as the um, uh, recent incident where the chimneys to which uh, three of these big units are connected were leaking. Collectively, this implies about 4,000 megawatts of power, which is um, from these units out. And then, of course, there is the very old coal-fired stations, uh, which have been long spoken about starting decommissioning process. They need to be starting to be decommissioned. They have, they're beyond their end-of-life time already. These are typically Camden, Arnold, uh, Creel power stations. This is about 10,000 megawatts. It's no question that you, you cannot just uh, do more maintenance on them. On top of that, of course, uh, not being an, a, a coal-fired station is Kuberg's lifetime extension program, which could not be postponed anymore. It has already been postponed by a year, which takes 1,000 megawatts off the grip, 930 to be exact. Hopefully, they will complete the, the lifetime extension over the next uh, 12 months, but that remains to be seen. It's a very complex and large exercise. And collectively, this has effectively forced us now into this load shedding stage for the next two years, at least, at between stage four and stage eight. Uh, this is going to be the norm. There is no way that this uh, can be um, reduced. And uh, very importantly to note also is that the diesel-fired open-cycle gas turbines because of the logistic complexities of uh, providing them with diesel, despite the costs, you cannot solve this, uh, this, this, this problem to reduce it uh, to, say, no load shedding or maybe stage one or stage two. So we'll be sitting with this problem at least until the end of next year, if not into 2025. And thereafter, it will hopefully reduce to below stage four. And uh, my suspicion is that we'll be, for the next 10 years, we'll be in a load shedding situation between stage two and stage four. And the reason that for that is very simple, is that we will need to have to build between four to 6,000 megawatts of wind and solar projects annually for the next 20 years to just replace the existing nuclear and coal-fired power station capacities, which will be decommissioned over the next 20 years. And to put this into context, we have, as a country, over the last 10 years, only built about six to 7,000 megawatts of wind and solar. So now we need to do this on an annual basis, right, for the next 10 to 20 years. On top of that, because there is this big anti-lobby against any use of fossil fuels, the creation of dispatchable power, which gas-fired power is effectively one of the few alternative solutions, we would also need to supply the generation system with long-term storage solutions. And the answer cannot be just the so-called battery solutions. Everybody is punting batteries. It will have to be things like pump storage schemes. These are projects which take a long time to build, typically 10 years. They're difficult to fund, normally not funded by commercial means. Would have to be funded by ESCOM, which is unable to fund these. And then, of course, uh, there is the pos possibility of looking at uh, small modular nuclear reactors. But I think because of Africa to participate in that, again, it poses the question of, first of all, it take 10 years to deploy this technology. Uh, secondly, it will not be commercially fundable until it's operational. And ESCOM in its current state of uh, uh, financial disarray, it's, it's unclear whether this is at all viable. 
Okay, Dieter, thank you very much indeed. Bernard, this is a good place then to bring you into the conversation. Um, let's talk about the money side of this, if we can. Does the problem that we find ourselves in stem back purely to a funding issue, or is it more than that? Yeah, Jeremy, we know that Eskom's debt levels are currently sitting at about 396 billion rands, which is unsustainable. Um, this number needs to reduce to about 150 to 200 billion rand. That's the, the current um, amount of debt that, that Eskom can service or sustain, um, and that is a fundamental issue that needs to be resolved. I think it can be resolved in, in, in a couple of ways. One is obviously raising the tariffs, and that's what we've been seeing with NERSA increasing tariffs last week. The second one is, is looking at concessional funding, where Eskom agrees to move from fossil fuels to more environmentally friendly um, power generation. And thirdly, you could look at a uh, debt for equity swap with, with the SA government. Bernard, what's your view then on the NERSA price increase that we saw, the recommendation? I think similar to Tertia, you know, you end up in a scenario where it's almost like a downward spiral where your clients that can afford to pay you more for electricity decide to not use you and go off the grid. And the ones that can't afford to pay you for electricity, they stay on as a client and become a problem. And, and that's a theme that we will probably see playing out again and again as Eskom increases cost of electricity to the SA consumer. Briefly, how, how do we resolve the supply side problem then? Yeah, so so Jeremy, I think the following comes to mind immediately and, and these programs are set to close or could close and, and produce electricity in the next two to three years is we know that REAP bid window five is in the process of closing. That's 2,600 megawatts of which 1,000 megawatts um, have been signed, the PPAs. Um, we know that the three EDF projects have closed. The last one is closing this week. Investec was the um, technical bank and the hedge coordinating bank, thanks to our treasury sales and, and structuring team. We, as Dieter mentioned, uh, there's an RMIPP program of two gigawatts. Of that two gigawatts, 150 megawatts have been have been signed and those projects are closed and they're busy under construction. Um, the other 1,850, they are still in process of negotiating their PPA with Eskom. The major stumbling block there is that your input costs have increased and um, they are trying to negotiate a way with Eskom to, to make these projects viable. Then we know that bid window six was announced late last year. That's a gigawatt of PV and wind that can come onto the grid within the next 12 to 24 months. There's a gas IPP program that's yet to be launched. That's another three gigawatts. Uh, we reckon that those projects could come online in the next five to seven years. And then I think the private sector will really come to the party here. And just Bernard, very quickly then, if I can just if I can just interrupt, all well and good to look at this long term, but what about the next twelve months? What what do we expect to come online then? So I just want to quickly. So I, did, I think you know from a residential solar perspective, we can probably look at 150 megawatts from the commercial and industrial off-takers. That's your larger rooftop solar PV systems, probably 700 megawatts from your utility scale projects with single large off-takers. I reckon between the Sassols, Tronoxes, the Sabanias, Glencores, RBMs and Anglos, you can probably look at another gigawatt. RMIPP program, we know Scartec is currently under construction, so that's another, call it 150 megawatts in the next 12 months or so. Bid window five, probably 400 odd megawatts in the next 24 months. So 
Let me end this podcast then by bringing back into the conversation our Investec team and maybe just a little bit of forecasting. Same question to all three of you. How do you see this crisis playing out in the very short term, in the next couple of weeks? Tersha, you go first and then let's hear from your two colleagues. Jeremy, I think the focus is going to be on what happens at ESCOM and announcements as to funding for ESCOM to burn more diesel. Uh, Dieter, what about you? Yes, I, I agree that ESCOM is critical in this equation. They need, you know, they've got uh, senior management resigning, retiring. Well, this will filter down into the organization. It needs its uh, balance sheet resolved so that it can start funding their maintenance programs and also, very importantly, the grid extension programs, because uh, without that, it just cannot fulfill its role. And Bernard, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I think uh, we're sitting with a new board at Eskom with a clear energy availability factor mandate. And it'll be interesting to see how that is increased and how the funding is going to be procured for that. And I want to second what, what Tersha is saying around the diesel. Up until November 2022, Eskom's already spent 12 billion rands in diesel, which is double its budget for this year. So it'll be interesting to see where the money comes for, for the additional diesel. Yeah, the important thing to notice is that it's not just a question of throwing money at buying more diesel because the infrastructure, the logistic infrastructure to supply the diesel is not there. It doesn't exist. It's it's not also not possible. So it's it's not a function that you're going to run the peakers now, let's say 100% of the time, just for theoretical cases, right? This is a serious issue which will remain with us for several years now. And there's no quick solution to that. And that's where we are going to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to Henk Langenhofen, Chief Economist at the Minerals Council of South Africa. Please join us again as we continue to explore money trends shaping your world. If you haven't yet added us to your podcast feed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs, and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.